Hi, I'm Chris Mayer, and welcome to my series of podcasts, The Ancient Art of Modern Warfare. In these podcasts, I want to explore the political and military developments we hear and see through the media that seem to say that warfare is undergoing, or has already undergone, some sort of fundamental change, making it entirely different from your grandfather's warfare, or even war as we knew it at the end of the 20th century, if those are two different things for you. Ongoing revolution in military affairs, rendering all previous forms of warfare with its theory, strategy, and tactics obsolete. These things include autonomous weapon systems, hypersonic missiles, cyber warfare, contractors on the battlefield, the rise of mercenaries, and the ever-popular hybrid warfare. I will look at these things, me and hopefully some great guests, and explore what these things really mean, how they will change things, and very importantly, how they are just new characteristics, or in philosophical terms, mere accidents, and how the fundamental practice and substance of war is unchanging. Pope Francis recently said that sermons should be no longer than 10 minutes. After that, minds wander, people start looking at their watches, and generally wonder when he will make an end of it. I will try to follow that advice in these podcasts too. But you might ask, and you should ask, why does Chris Mayer think he has something worth saying about these things? So I'll explain a little bit of my background. I'm a retired colonel of the United States Army, more specifically an armored cavalry officer, with 30 years in uniform and the last 10 as a civilian in the Department of Defense. I patrolled the Iron Curtain during the Cold War, helped direct the dash across the desert in Operation Desert Storm, wrote operational and organizational concepts for the Army's post-Cold War future, concepts that included the Striker Brigade and our current brigade-based structure, and later I'll talk about why that needs to change. Looking to the future, I moved off to the Army Special Operations side and became qualified as a Civil Military Operations Officer, coordinating Allied and host nation support for our operations in the Balkans, and later served as Assistant Chief of Staff and Senior U.S. Military Observer to the UN peacekeeping mission in Liberia. In between, I was Chief of Staff for the reconstruction of Iraq in 2004-2005, where I gained the experience that set me on the path to be the U.S. government's technical expert on private military companies. I spent the last 10 years since my retirement from the Army working in that specific field. I'm also a graduate of the Army War College, the Air War College. I taught Command and General Staff College and served as adjunct faculty to the Naval War College. So, I think I have the broad experience to have something to say on the way warfare is going. I'm really not trying to toot my horn. Normally, you have to know me for quite some time before you know half of this. However, you need to know that the person recording these podcasts has at least as much on the ball about these things as some of the cable media military experts, without, I hope, the political slant. I promise not to slam or endorse any political leader or party in these podcasts. But let's begin. Imagine yourself a very safe observer of a battle about to begin in the Middle East. For most of the day, you have been watching a force of about 500 men with tanks, armored personnel carriers, artillery, and mortars prepare to launch an assault to take a petroleum facility deep in the desert. Their intelligence indicates that the defenders are few in number and likely to break and run in the face of a determined attack. At about 10 p.m., well past the last glimmers of daylight, the force moves out from the village it has been using to hide its presence and preparations. In the dark, the attack moves slowly over the open ground covered by mortar and artillery fire directed against the defensive positions of the petroleum facility. 
After about a half hour, the force comes within direct fire range of the installation. To the surprise of the attackers, the defenders do not break and run, but return fire with discipline and precision. It slows but does not stop the attack. Direct fire targeting the flashes from the defenders' guns and rockets now supplement the attackers' artillery fire. The defenders' fires slow down as they attempt to limit their exposure to this direct and indirect fire. But then, the battle changes, and the balance of firepower shifts in favor of the defenders. Attack helicopters and fighter bombers place devastating fire on the attackers' armored vehicles while long-range artillery fire rains down on the dismounted troops. That devastating wave is not enough, however, to stop the attack. As the jets depart, the attackers dismount from their wrecked vehicles and resume the attack on foot. What the air and artillery strikes did accomplish, however, was to silence the attackers' artillery. This allowed a handful of troops to reinforce the defenders. More importantly, they brought more ammunition. As the dismounted attackers close with the defenders' forward positions, a second wave of strike aircraft appear putting a violent end to the attack. Amazingly, there were no deaths among the defenders and only one wounded. When daylight came, however, there were several hundred dead attackers in the kill zone, along with the burnt-out hulks of all of their armored vehicles. So far, this scene seems to differ little from many of the others that have played out in the Middle East over the last 70 years. It is, however, an example of how much the face of battle has changed in those 70 years. It also shows that no matter how much certain features change, the fundamentals of war remain the same. So what was different about this particular battle? What made this battle seem to challenge notions of conventional warfare? After all, it was not unlike previous battles in the Middle East. Some of the more intense battles of Vietnam or Korea, or even some battles of the Second World War. So what was new? Well. To begin, what brought this particular engagement of the night of the 7th and 8th of February 2018 to the world's attention was that many of the dead, and by some estimates hundreds of the dead, were Russians, and about three dozen of the defenders were U.S. military. That would be alarming enough. Making this even more noteworthy was that the Russians were actually civilians from a private military company known as the Wagner Group. Wagner is the best known of several Russian-affiliated private military companies active in various hotspots of the world today. They operate without official mandate, direct involvement of, or attribution to the Russian government, but their activities clearly support Russian national interests. Mostly. Except sometimes they don't. The defenders' advantage were the other part of what made this fight different. Most of the defenders were not part of a national armed force either. They were members of a militia formed to free their homeland of ISIS control, the self-named Islamic State in Syria. Most were Kurdish, with a reputation for not running from a fight. Both sides were, essentially, non-state armed groups fighting on behalf of the interests of foreign powers. Something else that made this fight different was that the U.S. and Russian military forces communicated with each other before and during the fight. The U.S. forces told the Russians that they saw the force preparing for an attack, warned them not to attack, and once the attack started, asked them to withdraw before releasing the airstrikes. Throughout this, the Russian military denied any knowledge of the attack. Welcome to Modern Warfare, a battle that could have unfolded similarly at any time over the last 75 years, 
yet with aspects completely unlike anything we are accustomed to in conventional warfare. This is an introduction to what I hope these podcasts will be about. In these podcasts, I want to discuss these and other aspects of modern battle, how it's changing and how it's eternal. These changes include the apparent privatization of war, the possible loss of the state monopoly of violence and what that means. Should we be concerned about it? If so, why? And what can we do about it? I will start next time, next week, the next 10 minutes, with an introduction to these modern mercenaries being used by Russia and how they are changing the security situation. I think it will be interesting and provide a jumping off point for other discussion on how war is always old and ever new. Thank you.